And look, we're continuing in our sermon series, which as Mark alluded to, we're calling the Gospel in Graffiti, and that's our graffiti work um, from the first week. And we're calling it the Gospel in Graffiti because Zechariah, at least in the first half, is composed of eight powerful images which are um, there to express and breathe hope to a community that's under pressure, a community that's on the margins. And in the same way, graffiti is an explosion of imagery to communicate the experience and to communicate hope to a community on the margins. This week, as we come to um, our passage in chapter 3, we're coming to the fourth image. Now, this whole vision this week um, and what's going on with Joshua the high priest is all about this question, how do you get past your past? How do you get past your past? I mean, you can see that that's the issue because what is happening to Joshua is he's being accused for not being worthy. Because of things that have happened in the past, he's wearing these dirty clothes, and he's being accused by Satan for that, and it's having an effect on him. So how do you get past your past? Now, I would understand it if you were thinking, look, you know, that might be an interesting question for people at some time, but right now we're dealing with a present that is pretty challenging, and therefore dealing with our past is a luxury we don't have. After all, haven't we got enough to deal with in the present with COVID? But one of the features of this pandemic has been that as people have faced the pressures in the present, it has stirred up the problems from the past. I was reading just this week, the UK Household Longitudinal Study last year found that mental ill health had risen significantly during this pandemic as people are struggling to deal with issues from their past. So back in 2017 to 2019, the average incidence of mental ill health was at 23% in the UK general population. But in April 2020, when they measured it, just after a month into lockdown, it was measured at 37%. That is an astronomic rise of 14% increase in just a few months. And it's not too simplistic to say that one of the great endeavors of therapy and mental health as it seeks to, as um, therapy seeks to address that, is dealing with our past. How do we get past our past? Things that have happened to us, things that we have done which weigh down on us. Well, that is what this passage is about. Look, in, in a religious context, you might frame that question more like this. How do sinful people stand before a holy God? But I want us to see as we come to this passage, it's the same question really at root. And we're going to see how this passage addresses it in three ways. First of all, we're going to consider the accusations. Then we're going to consider the defense. And lastly, we're going to look at this person, the branch. The accusations, the defense, and the branch. Come with me as we look, first of all, at the accusations in verses 1 to 3. Now, I've said that we are in the fourth of this first set of eight visions. And the way that these eight visions are structured in this first half of the book is they work from out to in. So the first three visions, one to three, match visions six, seven, and eight. And they're dealing, if you like, with the external factors that God's people were facing, the return from exile, how the nations were viewing them, the rebuilding project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple of central importance. But visions four and five that sit right in the center are about the centerpiece, the, the spiritual life, the internal dynamics of what is going on in God's people. And so we're zooming in really on the heart of God's people. That is what needs to change for God to dwell with his people. 
And that brings us to verses 1 to 3, where we see Joshua, who was the high priest at the time, in an awful situation. He is standing in a heavenly courtroom before God himself, and he's clothed in filthy garments. Now, the significance of this is that the high priest represented the people to God and God to the people. And so, he represented the people of the day, their spiritual condition. The description of him is a description of them and is also a description of us. And look at how he is described, first of all. He's described dressed in filthy clothes, and he's being accused by Satan. Now, look, I know we're modern people, and so the idea of um, a devil, you know, pointy tail, horns, um, things that go bump in the night doesn't really square with us. But the word Satan literally means in the Hebrew accuser, and that's what he's doing here, and that's what he mostly does in Scripture. He accuses. Now, I don't actually think we have too much difficulty believing that there's an accuser, because all of us, when we pause for a moment, um, know that there are accusations going on in our own hearts and minds pretty much constantly. It's been my privilege to minister in this great city of London now for nine years. I've lived in it for a lot longer. And I'd go so far as to say that the accusations we feel is one of the great drivers for how people live in the city. Um, Let me give you an illustration. I remember a number of years ago, um, I was at a a sporting um, competition, and there was this kid, and he'd done pretty well. He'd got third in the biggest competition of his life, and he ran up to his coach afterwards and said, Coach, coach, I got third. And you know what the coach said to him? Why didn't you win? And all of us feel like that in this city. We all feel like we never quite do enough. There's always someone who's better than us, and we have this voice in our head that says, you're not enough. That's not enough, and we don't feel enough, and it drives us. I mean, why is it in this area around here, for example, that gangs and drug dealers have such a hold on many of the children and young people on the estates, constantly being able to say to those kids, just do this one thing for me. Do it, and then you'll be accepted. Then we'll accept you in. Why is it that others work so hard in the city pursuing endless career promotion, thinking if I just get to that stage or become partner or start running my own desk, then I'll fill enough. And then when they get there, they don't fill enough. It's just a false horizon behind which lie more horizons. Why is it that so many people in this city pursue a series of unfulfilling sexual encounters, hoping deep down that they'll wake up one morning and they'll feel enough but never feeling enough. We all have that feeling of accusations, always feeling like we need to be enough or to do enough, and we never feel like we are enough. Why? Well, in this vision, we get the reason why. Because in the description of Joshua, we understand two things, guilt and shame, and these lie behind the accusations. Notice, first of all, that Joshua is described, verse 3, in filthy clothes. Now, this is a very delicate translation, but the literal word that's being used here is clothes smeared with excrement, with feces. And the reason that that is being talked about here is because in the Old Testament, um, if you came into contact with um, any feces or excrement, then you were ritually or ceremonially unclean before a holy God. You couldn't come into the temple precincts for a week and only then after you had offered sacrifices. It was a picture of the way that our sin separates us from God. That is, our real moral failure before our holy God means that we can't come into His presence. 
And we know that's what's going on, that it's not just a picture because of the way that Joshua is described by the angel. He's described as, verse 2, a burning stick snatched from the fire. That's referring to the exile that has been going on for 70 years. The burning was the judgment on God's people for all of the ways that they hadn't returned to God, for all of the ways that they had failed to live for God. It was their real, objective, moral guilt before a holy God. Now, we need to be careful here because, of course, not every accusation we have in our heads is legitimate. You know, one of the reasons we need to be careful is we need to weigh up with Scripture and the work of the Spirit what are legitimate accusations of things we really have done wrong and what are the lies of the devil because he is a liar. But the reason that any accusations push in on us, the reason that we listen to the voices at all, is because deep down we know that we are filthy, that we are unfit to stand in the presence of a holy God. The accusations have force on us because we feel that, we, we know that, we know that behind our guilt feelings is real guilt, the guilt that testifies against us. Here's the standard in the New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And deep down, we know that none of us does that. We all have the stains, we all have the guilt feelings, and so we walk around with those accusations. If only people really knew what you were like. If only they, they found out what I'd done. Do, do they know that about me? I, I don't deserve to be here. All of those accusations, they, they crowd in on us because of the real guilt that we carry. Secondly, not just guilt, but shame. Shame, if you like, if guilt is the internal dynamic of what we've done wrong. Shame is the relational dynamic that results from that. Notice Joshua is described as a high priest wearing filthy clothes. Now, we all have, I think, this kind of social nightmare that we will stand up in front of a group of people, our loved ones, a family at the front of church or a business meeting, and we won't have noticed that we've got a hideous stain on us. And at that moment, we are unaware of it, and people start to laugh, and we suddenly feel self-conscious, and we look down, and there's the stain. And what do we feel in that moment? Shame. That's shame. It's the social outworking of the guilt that we face. I remember when I took my first um, wedding as a young curate before I became a vicar, so my very first wedding, and I remember just being so nervous beforehand because I kept thinking, what if I get a word wrong? What if I say the wrong sentence? Does that mean that when I say I now pronounce you husband and wife, that they're not really husband and wife, and afterwards they're going to come up to me and they're going to say, you said we were husband and wife. We're not husband and wife. What have you done? And I would feel shame because I felt like an imposter. I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. So I double and triple-checked everything. I went over it fastidiously beforehand, and then I went through the wedding, and at the reception afterwards... Someone came up to me and they said, oh, thanks so much for running the wedding. You must have done this quite a few times because you just seem so confident. And I just thought, if only you knew. I'm an imposter. I don't know what I'm doing. I just stand up and put on a brave face. And don't we all do that? Maybe you put your makeup on every day before you go to work or at least before you go on your Zoom call after you, you know, have just got out of bed, right? 
and you put it on, and of course, it's not just makeup, really. It's like putting on you know, a little bit of armor, putting on a mask so that you can feel like people aren't going to see through you and see that you feel like an imposter. So many of us, in the way we project ourselves, we, we, we overstate our confidence, don't we? Because actually, we don't feel confident. We feel really insecure. We feel like an imposter. So many of us are trying to, to make sure that there's no crack, that no one sees through us. You know, and so we, we're always on the lookout. We're always hypervigilant. Has anyone seen through me? Have they seen that I don't really feel like I belong here in church, in business, in my friendship group, in my family, always feeling like we're on the outside looking in? I know we all feel like that. I feel like that. And that's shame. And the shame has currency because it's connected to our guilt. And so as Joshua stands in filthy clothes with Satan accusing him, saying, shame on you. So we all feel those accusations. But if that's the accusations, I now want us to see the wonderful, wonderful ways that the Lord deals with it here in the defense of verses 4 to 7. In verse 4, notice that the angel speaks in Joshua's defense. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. So this makes it really clear that the clothes represent his sin. And he says, take them off. Now, please notice what doesn't happen here, because we've got to get this right. The Lord, with the angel acting on his behalf, takes off his dirty clothes. Joshua does not take them off himself. In other words, we can't remove the guilt and the shame of our own sin. And you might be saying, yeah, Pete, I know that. Do you? Because so much of human endeavor is about us trying to deal with our own sin rather than letting God deal with it. This is where Christianity is unique from every world religion. In Christianity alone does God say, I'll take away the sin. So many of us try to self-atone that is, deal with our sin ourselves, try to make ourselves at one with God by our own behavior. No, God does it for us. Secondly, notice that Joshua doesn't cover up his guilt by good works. In the metaphor of the, or in the illustration of the, the image, that would be Joshua leaving his filthy clothes on and then trying to put a, a clean garment over the top. But here's the thing, right? Sorry to be blunt, but he's smeared an excrement. So he might look clean, but the stink would remain. And I say that because many of us try to cover over, cover up um, our sin by putting a clean garment over the top. Look at all the good things I've done, right? My friend, you might fool a few people for a time, but the stink remains. And so we often think, don't we, in People talk like this. They say, oh, you know, when I get to the end of my life, I, I like to think that maybe my good deeds will have you know, outweighed my bad deeds, and so at the end of things, the, the books will balance. The problem is this. No good deeds can ever deal with the stain of our bad deeds. The stain remains. It doesn't matter how hard we try, how authentic we seek to be, how generous we are, how many social causes we get involved with, what about the bad deeds? You can't just cover them over, cover them up. They're still there. They've got to be dealt with, removed, and only God 
can take away our guilt. Only God can remove our shame because God is the one we've offended. Our sin is against Him. All of our moral failures, insofar as they, they hurt and wound other people, because He's the Creator, they, they ultimately hurt and wound Him. And only He is the wronged party can deal with them. And so this wonderful picture, He says, take them off. I will deal with your sin. I will remove it. I will deal with your shame. I will take it away. Take it off to the angel. Take it off. It's gone. And then secondly, notice the other part, halfway through verse 4. See, I've taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Please notice, God doesn't just stop, as wonderful as this would be, with taking off the filth of sin and dealing with the guilt and shame. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean. But if I can put it like this, slightly controversially, there is something even more wonderful than forgiveness. And you're saying, forgiveness? What can be more wonderful than forgiveness? This, what theologians technically call imputed righteousness. That is, it's not just that the slate is wiped clean, but the new clothes, the clean clothes, the proper clothes now are put on. Think of it like this. Um, if someone was convicted of a crime and they needed to serve a sentence, then they could go into prison and they could serve the sentence and on the day that they were released, they would walk out a free person, right? So the guilt is dealt with because they paid the sentence and the shame is dealt with because they're no longer a criminal. But they might walk out, but what will they now feel and what will people feel as they look at them? They'll say, well, I know they've paid the sentence, but are they really different? And so therefore that will drive that person to try to show that they're reformed character, that I, I really am different. The slate might have been wiped clean, but what do you do now with the clean slate? Well, you have to try hard, right, to prove that you're reformed character. Or think of it in monetary terms. If we have a debt to pay, then God wonderfully comes along and cancels the debt. But that means our bank balance is only zero, right? There's nothing in the bank balance, so right, we have to work hard to earn moral money, right, to, to put money in the bank account. And this is how many, many Christians feel. We feel like, wonderfully, Jesus has forgiven me, but he's just wiped the slate clean. But now I have to show everybody in the church and around that I can be a good person, that the reformation that's gone on in my life has really taken root. I need to put the money in the bank. And it weighs us down. It deprives us of joy. No, God does far more than forgiving our sin, as wonderful as that is. He imputes that as He gives the pure, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. He gives us His clothes as He also takes off the filthy clothes. And so Joshua is now clothed as a high priest. And I think the point of verse 5 and saying put a clean priestly turban on his head is to say from head to toe, Every part of him is now forgiven and covered in God's righteousness. So that as God looks at us now, he doesn't look at us and say, well, I've wiped the slate clean, but now show me what you're going to do with that clean slate. No, no, no. He looks at us. He says, I've wiped the slate clean, and I look at you as my beloved son and daughter. You are clothed in Christ's righteousness the joy that God the Father feels for God the Son is the same joy He feels for you because Christ's righteousness is yours. 
And so you don't have that burden of always having to try to do more, be enough, feel enough to try to, in some ways, show that God's salvation was merited. No, it's been done. It's complete. He's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, and He's given you Christ's righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Last night I was watching a um, Netflix, uh, absolutely Amazon Prime, uh, Amazon Prime TV series called This Is Us. And there's a, um, a woman in This Is Us called Kate, and she loves her dad, and tragically he dies. And every year on the anniversary of her dad's death, she plays a video, and it's a picture in the video of her dad looking at her as she sings a song, and then she catches him in the mirror. Um, so he's videoing, and she sees in the mirror just his face. And as she sings this song, she doesn't know when she's initially singing it as a young child, he just sees this picture of a father delighted in her. And one of the problems she has is she struggles with her weight, and she never feels like she's enough. And yet each, each year she comes back to that video, the father delighting in the daughter. Love. My friend, do you know that's how God sees you? He doesn't just wipe the slate clean, but he, he looks at you. He loves you. He delights in you if you trust in Jesus because your sin has been taken away and Christ's righteousness has been given to you. He couldn't love you anymore. What do you see when you see God the Father looking at you? A scowling face? A reluctant, I'll pay your debt, but now show me you've really, you really earned it? No. The Father delights in you. He loves you. Or you might say, how is that possible? How can it be that I am filthy before God and that He delights in me? Well, it's all possible through the branch. Let's look lastly at verses 8 to 10. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before me, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, there's a number of bits of symbolism here that we just need to unpack. First of all, he calls his servant the branch. Um, it's a phrase that relates to a phrase we have, the family tree. And the point is that the branch is in the family tree of David. In other words, this servant who is to come is going to be in the royal line of David. He's going to branch off from David, which is why when Jesus comes, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, takes great care in that very first chapter to show that Jesus is descended from royalty. He is in royal David's line because he is this servant. He is this branch. So this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. How will God deal with sin? How will God give righteousness to us? Through the royal branch, Jesus Christ, the servant, who is a high priest, as we will see later on in, um, in Zechariah, and is also the king in the royal line, the branch. Secondly, notice that God talks about a stone or a jewel with seven eyes. In Hebrew, it's a, a wordplay because eyes is the same word as facets. So it's talking about a jewel with seven facets on it, seven being the number of completeness, of, of perfection. And it talks about something being inscribed on it. This is a reference to Joshua, the high priest. He had a breastplate 
And on his breastplate, which was enormously heavy, were 12 stones, precious gems, and on each one was engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And this is the point. The people of God could not go into the presence of God, into the most holy place. Only Joshua could, as the priest who represented the people to God and God to the people. So once a year, after, after offering sacrifices, he would take God's people, symbolically, into the presence of God and there offer a sacrifice, but just for one day, once a year. But Jesus, as the perfect high priest, takes the stone with our names engraved on it. That's a symbol of permanence. And he perfectly takes us into God the Father's presence. And not just for one day, once a year, but for all time. He bears us as the high priest before the throne of God so that we are as close to God the Father as Jesus is close to God the Father, right standing there with him in perfect intimacy, in perfect fellowship. And when does all this happen? Well, it says all this happens in a single day. This prophecy is remarkable. 500 years before Jesus Christ, and in a single day when Jesus came, he dealt with all of the stain, all of the filth, all of the stench of our sin. He dealt with the guilt and shame. How did he do that? On that cross, he said this, give me your clothes. Give me your sin. Give me the filth. I know it weighs you down. I know you feel the accusations. Give it all to me. He had no sin of his own to bear to the cross. But all that he bore to the cross was all of the weight of our sin. In the Church of England, there's a confession, and it says this about sin. The memory of our sin bears us down. The burden of them is too great for us to bear. Jesus Christ knows it. He sees it. He knows the burden is too great for you to bear. He hears the accusations. He says, give them to me. Give it all to me. The things you're most ashamed about, the things you'd die if anyone knew about you, the accusations that come in the, the small hours of the morning when everybody else is asleep and no one else sees you, and there the accusations nag away at you. I can't believe you did this. You can't believe you did this. He says, my friend, give it to me. And he bears it all on the cross, covered with our sin. He dies so that we might have forgiveness and have life. He bears our sin so that he might deal with our sin, so that as far as the east is from the west, that sin, by him dying on the cross, taking the judgment that we deserve from God for our sin, is dealt with. And then he says, more than that, my perfect life, the way that I always loved my father, the way that I always did the right thing, the way that I was always perfectly compassionate towards people, my life of perfect authenticity, perfect integrity, my perfect life is yours. And then as he ascends to the right hand of God the Father, he stands there now, not as a part-time high priest, but as a full-time high priest who stands in the presence of God the Father. So that as it says in Hebrews 4, 14, 16, we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
all our sin has been taken away. All our guilt has been dealt with. All our shame has been cast away. All of His righteousness has been given to us. We are complete, perfect in God's presence forevermore if we trust in Him. Isn't the gospel amazing? I want to close by just noticing how the passage ends. It's just a glorious picture in just the last few minutes. Verse 10, in that day, as in when this happens and when you really grasp this has happened, each of you will invite your neighbor to sin under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. This is a picture of rest. This is a picture of prosperity. This is a picture of relationships restored. This is a picture of peace. In other words, how do you know you've really grasped what this passage is about? Do you feel that type of peace? Do you feel like you could just sit under a fig tree with your friend and just be at peace? Let me close by giving three ways that I think um, we struggle to feel this peace. Three things that we do that show we haven't really grasped this and that negate the work of the cross and mean that we feel restless. First one, we deny. We deny. You know, not all the accusations that Satan says to us are true, but some are true. And sometimes in life, when we're faced with accusations, because we are insecure, because we don't really know what Jesus has done for us, we deny. We push back. We say, no, no, that's not me. We try to deflect with clever tactics like, I didn't like the way you spoke to me, as though the way they spoke to you is really the issue, right? We deny. We, we push back on our sin. We feel like, I can't bear to admit my sin. Then people will see through me. My friend, God already sees you. Can I ask you, when was the last time you concretely, not generally, concretely apologized for something before God and before other people? If you can't name that, or if you're not sure about that, talk to a close friend or a loved one and say, you know, what do you reckon? Do I push back on my sin? Many of us deny and push back, and we'll feel no peace if we're constantly denying the accusations. Of course, we need to weigh ourselves against Scripture. Of course, we need to say to the Holy Spirit, search me out. So the accusations are the ones that are true and not the lies of the devil. But when you're faced with the truth, don't deny it. You'll feel no peace. Secondly, we self-atone. Very often, people don't feel at rest because they flip from denial, which pushes it back, to self-atonement, which is usually shown by someone catastrophizing. So self-atonement is kind of like a self-flagellation. I'm an awful person. Woe is me. I'm terrible. You know, and you know when sometimes you, apolog- or you, or you ask someone for an apology and you initially feel they deny, and then finally the next time you maybe chat to them, you feel like they've suddenly flipped it around and they go away and they say, oh, I feel awful. You know, I feel terrible. You know, what you said has really made me feel awful. And you're kind of thinking, well, is the feelings of being awful, is that a, a kind of righteous conviction? Or is that a sense of you making it about you as though you feeling awful deals with your sin? Self-atonement can be down on yourself rather than realizing the wonderful forgiveness of Christ. Don't carry the burden. Jesus carried it for you. Feel sorry for your sin. Feel sorry for the effects on other people. But know you're forgiven. Don't deny. Don't self-atone. And lastly, don't seek to do good works to cover up. The preacher Tim Keller from New York often memorably says that many of us need to not just repent of our bad deeds, but we also need to learn to repent of our good deeds. And what he's saying is this, that many of us need to repent, turn away from God for the way that we think our good deeds justify us. I have to say this is my particular besetting sin, 
It's like in my head I constantly have this record of the good things I've done. And so when I'm faced with my sin or when someone confronts me with my sin, I'm too quick to kind of say to them, yeah, but also did you notice the way that I, I do this? You know, I am sorry. Isn't it good that I've also done this? No. The good works don't cover over the sin. Remember the image? It's not like putting clothes over the filthy garments. Jesus has taken it all away, and I'm clothed in his garments. So when someone confronts me about my sin or when the Spirit confronts me about my sin, I can just own it and say, that's me. I did that. Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me. And it's not saying the good works don't have their place, but they're never a way to earn God's favor or to cover up our sin. They're only ever a response to all that he's done for us, lived out in the freedom of joy and self-forgetfulness. So how do you get past your past? I don't know if you're feeling that burden at the moment. How do you deal with your ungodliness before a holy God? He takes away your sin. He takes away your shame. He then gives you the perfect righteousness of Christ. And to the extent that you feel that, you will feel at peace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please impress this upon our hearts. This is what the people in Zechariah's day really needed to hear and to heed. This is what we really needed to hear and to heed as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would please impress this glorious gospel message on our hearts. Please help us to be aware of the ways that we don't let this really take root, maybe by denial, by self-atonement, by uh, good works to cover up or cover over our sin. Have mercy, Lord, and by your Spirit, draw us to yourself, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen.